Welcome to Create New Futures, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Julie Noonan. Julie is an executive coach and strategic change consultant, helping corporate executives lead transformational change. Julie, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, let me dive in by asking you first of all the things you do, what do you enjoy most? What makes you most alive? What makes me most alive, Aviv, is seeing people recognize new ideas, seeing people come to life after recognizing new ideas and seeing them just bloom and understand that they can do things differently in their life to make their lives more enjoyable for themselves and for others. Well, that's the essence of uh, working on the transformational edge, facilitating yes. the discovery for people, yes? Yes, absolutely. Well, so we are operating in a rapidly changing environment for several years. So a good place to explore right at the beginning is to ask you, what are the top trends that you are observing, that you are monitoring with leaders in medium size, in large size, but whatever companies you work with, what are the key trends that you are monitoring? Well, the key trends that I'm monitoring are essentially the boomer generation and the exodus of the last few years of the boomers and the need for them to continue to make a mark while they're still in the workforce to the need for them to remain relevant even during this crazy amount of change that they're going through. They're needing to leave a legacy. And a lot of them are really struggling with the whole idea of retirement. You know, we're living longer these days. We are, the whole idea, the traditional idea of retirement is not something that a lot of people are buying into anymore, especially, you know, the boomer generation right now, we're not done. You know, we're not done when it's, when we're 65 or 70, we, we're still healthy. We're still, you know, cognizant and intellectually interested and curious. We still want to make a mark. And so how can we stay relevant and keep learning, keep being curious, and keep contributing to the workforce and to business, we don't necessarily want to go off into the sunset and play golf all the time. Right. Well, mm -hmm. we officially already retired the construct of retirement. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. For a start, there are many people who are actually financially not in a position where they could just live on their savings for uh, from age 65 to 95. Some will, but um, with the way the markets will perform or not perform in the next few years, a good number of people will have a rude awakening. 
So that's an interesting one. What else do you then see that is central in this conversation with them, especially when you say, well, it's a generation that's not ready to retire, B, they want to be irrelevant, and C, they're wondering about meaning and purpose and living a legacy? Well, one of the things that I found interesting with COVID is I call it the great Band-Aid ripoff, <laughs> meaning that a lot of things, a lot of changes that were happening already in the culture and in business slowly, all of a sudden happened very quickly out of necessity. So remote work, you know, the whole idea of mental health, the whole idea of more diversity and inclusion, the more the the social media aspects of marketing, the true global nature of the work that we all do, all of that accelerated. And a lot of the values of the younger generations also accelerated. And I think a lot of the boomer generation um, kind of got blindsided a little bit with that. And that, that resulted in some of the quiet quitting. It resulted in some of the demands on corporations of the younger generations that, hey, you know, I'm not here to make you guys a lot of money. What I'm here to do is to live a purpose and to raise my family and to feed my family. And sure, I would like to contribute to a, a you know, a large organization and but I want to contribute to an organization that has a purpose besides making money for, you know, <laughs> for the big dogs, if you will. And that that I have wrestled with some of my coaching clients who feel who still feel a little bit like working with the younger generations is working with an entitled generation when really it's simply a different set of values. And one of the things that I encourage my executive coaching clients to do is to seek to understand that the newer generations aren't going away. We are, you know, <laughs> the newer generations are the future of business. And if we want to leave a mark, we have to understand their values and help and help them understand that we have experience that can help them not make some of the same mistakes that we've lived through in the past. So Indeed. it's really more working together with them and understanding. Indeed. So you're describing the shift in values, the shift in expectations with younger generation, partly because they have seen all that occurred in the last uh, several decades before they came into the workforce, if they haven't seen it personally, they, they've studied their, their trajectory and they feel disillusioned about the large institutions. And in a way, you could say that if the older generation embraced the American ethos of work to live, the younger generation is, is swinging a bit more to the European We we live to well. Live to uh, the the other way around. They all the generation. <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> they live to work. That they, they swing more to the European of no. We want to have a life, so we're going to work to support our lives. And here around me, the younger people that work in Microsoft and 
Google and Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, they're not prepared to do the 80-hour week. They, they want to produce high-impact, finish work, go and have a family, and do their outdoor activities. Absolutely. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with either uh, way that you want to work. If you are someone who enjoys your work and you want to put in 80 hours a week because it's it just fills you up with joy and it feeds your soul, go for it. But it doesn't mean that everyone else has to do that as well. And that's the difference, I think, in letting go of the judgment of that there is a right and wrong way of working well, these days. It's easier said than done because in, Very, many, yes. in many companies, the, the challenge is what is the set of the expectations? What's the corporate DNA? And are we prepared to commit to that? Or no, we would actually never get around it and uh, fight it in or, or look to convert it to our set of values. All of that is part of the challenge of multi-generations at work, yeah? Absolutely. And it doesn't change overnight. You know, it takes a lot of iterations. It takes a lot of um, experimentation to figure out what works for my company, what makes my customers happy, what makes my company the most profitable, the most productive, what makes my employees the most profitable and the most productive and the most engaged. That's a different answer for every single organization out there. And it's a different mix. And so there is no one size fits all approach to this. But the best companies are taking a look at their how they are in the world from all of those perspectives and not just falling back on what is comfortable for them to do and not falling back on what's easy. Yeah. The other side of this, Julie, is, Mm -hmm. I believe, what I describe as the three jobs mindset. I was yesterday morning with a leadership team from a leading Silicon Valley company Mm -hmm. and onboarded them to uh, what will become a a probably six to nine months transformational journey. And one of the key framing ideas I offered at the beginning was that we are shifting from what used to be a one job to a three job mindset. Well, that the way I frame this is that if you came into the workforce 25 years ago, which is or 30 years ago, and you're describing the boomers that they came into, some of them came into the workforce even earlier. Right. You're essentially hired to do one job. The job you were hired to do is was the job of of that that manifested in the job description. That over the last 25 years and increasingly in the last decade and even more so since the pandemic, you really need to consider that you're coming to always have three jobs. So you have job one, which is do the work. But in many companies, you have job two, which is to transform the work. You're expected to do the work and to transform how both the what and the how of the work to produce new outcomes and to get that work done in a new way, eliminate, automate, Mm-hmm. what used to be part of the work to enable you to do other things. And the the epiphany, the, the aha of this, that you also have job three, which is that to do job one, which is to do the work, and job two, which is to transform the work at the highest level, you need 
to transform yourself. That's job three. Mm-hmm. So actually, that is your personal responsibility. In the old world, you were hired for a job and you expected that if there were new skills required in that job, the company will deliver some kind of training. Well, who in the workplace imagined uh, two years ago that they will need to, to practice the skill of entering effective prompts to jet GPT or, or, or <laughs> right? So that's a new skill. If you're going to wait to, for anybody to train you in this, you're going to stay behind. So I suggested to them exactly to the point you're describing about staying relevant, that the challenge in job three is you need to develop new technical technology interfacing skills, but to the point you are making, also develop new leadership skills. You need to practice empathy and ways of encouraging and facilitating and enabling people working for you, not like you used to in a job one environment. If all people did was job one, I get the work done, you needed to supervise the work. Now that they need to transform the work and transform themselves, you as a leader need to enable and facilitate that. It's a whole new set of skills Mm -hmm some of which you are describing, the capacity to integrate different set of expectations. It takes a lot more trust as well. It takes a lot more trust in human beings' ability to be innovative, to allow them to fail, to allow them to experiment and to try new things because you can't transform your job. You can't do job two unless you are supported to try things to transform that job. And so leaders who are command and control simply have a very difficult time with that, very difficult time in trusting that the outcome, even if it's a failure, like the Starlink explosion this morning, not Starlink, the um, SpaceX explosion this morning. Did you hear about that? Not yet. Yeah, it was a huge, uh, the biggest rocket ever to be blasted off and it exploded four minutes later. But Elon Musk came on and said, not that I like him very much, but <laughs> he came on and said, hey, it was worth it because we learned whatever we learned from this is going to go into the next one and the next one and the next one. This isn't failure. This is the next step in what we need to do to make this whole project successful. So it's that kind of thinking that leaders need to have moving forward, that failure isn't something that is a stop. It is a redirection. It is a, okay, we tried that. What did we learn? And let's move on. Well, yes. And yeah, <laughs> that type of leadership capacity, you could say, was, was also necessary in the past, but what you're describing about the need to build the capacity to integrate a worldview that enable you to accommodate and support different set of values and expectations, that is a different order of challenge. So when I onboarded them into the three jobs mindset, I said, look, so you're going to need to learn and develop new technical technology Mm -hmm. interfacing skills. You need to develop the capacity to facilitate and enable people to transform themselves and transform the work. Mm-hmm. And you need to do, to do so 
in an environment where, as you said, social media, we grapple with so much more ambiguous, uncertain, nuanced, confused, highly polarized environment. And who said that you need to be, a, you just wanted to have a, a career in a company, but now you're a leader and you need to become nuanced diplomat and navigate social trends that are way outside of what you were trained to. So you need to be sophisticated and integrate that. All that is part of the tension and the struggle of being a leader in this environment. Absolutely. And it seems like it takes a lot more energy. It takes a lot more energy to be a leader these days, a lot more internal energy to recognize how very important it is to be able to recognize and navigate those, the political situations and the unspoken, the micro inequities, the, all of the things that influence the messy human experience that we're dealing with. It's, it's not as cut, clear cut as it used to be in the business world. We don't leave our personal selves at home anymore. No, that separation is long gone. So you talked yes. about energy and about internal energy. Mm-hmm. I know that is an important dimension for you in, in your work. Talk more about what you mean by that. And what is the energy of the energy work, the energy journey, the energy consideration of uh, leadership at this time? Well, I was trained as an energy leadership coach. And one of the, if you believe that everything is energy, that everything in your life is energy and energy can create emotion, emotion creates energy, energy is emotion. And if you believe that human beings are emotional beings that occasionally actually think, (laughs) that when we we're dealing with systems that are made up of messy human beings, really what we're dealing with is a balls of energy. And I'm one of those people that can walk in to a room and observe a leader, you know, delivering a message or a staff meeting or whatever and feel how it is landing in that room. I can feel the energy that that leader is putting into the room. And it's not this whole concept of don't be negative or don't be positive or be positive all the time. That's not the point. The point is that the energy that the leader holds, the I want to say it's not even optimism, but it is the the winning nature of the energy, the belief and the trust that that leader holds in themselves, as well as in their teams, the team can feel that and the team is motivated by that. In my mind, there's nothing more powerful than a leader that truly believes in their team, in their ability to do something amazing. Be even beyond what they're there to do on paper. Yeah. Well, to at the risk of sounding a little esoteric here, uh, the, yeah. the, the fundamental uh, reasoning you're offering is number one, 
we are energy beings we're energy units by the fact of being alive that's anything that's involved in our activity everything we do everything we think everything we feel is energy power that's number one number two what you what is implicit in what you're saying is that so what differentiates the mm -hmm. energetic nature of different people and different leaders well one way to think about it is that your beliefs your maps of belief and the reasons you choose to express and the purpose that guides and inspire you they determine the energetic sources that you bring to your conversation to your dialogue and you don't need to be highly sensitized or esoterically trained about the energy right. to respond to that all people respond to it mostly at a semi-conscious level of course if people were trained and sensitized they can become more conscious to those dimensions of leadership but this is an invitation to become more self-aware about what inspires you what guides you and what are the also what worries you and what frightens you because those they shape some of the energy that you bring to the table hence the the criticality of being engaged as a leader in a personal discovery a personal development journey inside of which the the knowledge of self is central to that journey absolutely when i speak with a leader who doesn't necessarily appreciate appreciate the esoteric if you will when a leader just wants you know the give it to me easy down and dirty basics i say think of yourself as a magnet whatever you're putting out there you're getting back so if you're putting out there that you're worried, you're scared, you're fearful, you're upset, you're ticked off, whatever it is, that exact thing that you're putting out there as far as your energy goes is going to be reflected right back to you. So be careful of what you're putting out there. Well, yes, and... Yes. <laughs> I often say that people around you in the workplace, they are highly psychic and clairvoyant more than they know. So even if you are camouflaging and giving something that, that covers what you really feel, they pick on your feelings. So that's why, again, you need to, if you're a good leader, and let's say there is crisis, you're actually able to take us on a journey to describe, including the sense of concern and, and vulnerability. Absolutely. And lead people on that emotional sublimation, transformation, transmogrification trans, um, um, journey such that essentially, I mean, that's what when we, leaders in history that we looked up to, were not leaders that were just purely optimistic. They were leaders that were able to, in the example of FDR, who experienced already everything that can, can be experienced in terms of the, having been crippled. So he was the one qualified to talk to a crippled nation, crippled by fear. And therefore he was able to articulate the only thing to fear is fear itself. That's the idea of transforming the energy of the moment through the act of leadership. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what transparency should be all about. It's not that the leader can never say, I'm worried about this. But they also need to say, I'm worried about this, and here's what I see are our next steps, and I believe we're going to get through it, and I had trust 
that we will because I believe in you and I believe in myself and I believe in the company or whatever mitigating factors there are. Like you said, they need to have already thought through that journey for themselves. And that's where when I work with um, sponsors of change, once they make that change decision for their company or for their department, one of the things that I love to do the most is to sit down with them and play out the scenarios and play out the scenarios of, okay, let's say everything goes perfectly, exactly like you want it to. What will happen? Let's just talk it through all the way. Then let's talk about what if this happened? Let's just talk through the scenarios and let's talk about how are you going to feel when that happens? How are you going to react when that happens? What have you not thought about? What if this surprising, what if this person, your right-hand person surprises you with a reaction that you never expected? What if the person you're relying on the most quits? You know, what if, and I love to talk them through their personal reaction to those things so that they can feel it and deal with it before it actually happens, if it does. Indeed. Well, uh, that's the the scenarios practice and the scenarios practice in the personal leadership and similar methodology is used in the armed forces. And I was trained adjacently in the Air Force, in the Israeli Air Force. You do whenever you go on on an assignment (laughs) of any kind, you need to plan all the possible eventualities. What if this and what if that and how will you respond and what is the recourse that will be available for you? Let's circle back just for a bit into this idea of four or five generations in the workplace. We talked a little bit about the the boomers that are not quite ready to go into the sunset, and we talked about the younger generation. These days, some would say that every five years is a generation. So there is a difference between the 25, 26 to the mid-30s. Partly it's an age difference, partly already generational difference. Mm -hmm. So how do you frame the generations that are now in the workplace and what would you describe as the key need or guidance that they need at this time? Just if you went through from those uh, three or four or five generations, how would you frame that? Well, the boomers from are basically the last year of the boomers is, is 1964, according to, you know, the most of the, the research. And then you've got your Xers, which those folks are generally in their 40s and 50s now. Then you've got your Gen, Gen Z, is that right? Boomer, Xer, Gen Z. No, there was Gen Y and then Gen Gen Y. Gen Y were framed as the native digital natives. They, they, yes, that's right. They were right after the Xers. Yes, Gen Y. And then anyway, I look at anyone under 40 as a digital native, Mm -hmm. frankly. And also, I look at what's happening in, like you said, that every five years is a new generation. That's being caused by technology. It's not being caused by true generational changes. It's really being caused by the introduction of radical new technologies that are being introduced to children at earlier and earlier and earlier ages. 
And so what children or what people are coming into the workforce knowing right now is a heck of a lot more about technology than anything else, frankly. <laughs> right. So what you're saying implicit in that is they know more about technology, but in some other aspects of the human experience, perhaps they are behind in maturation in comparison to uh, earlier generations. Well, and part of that is because the the way they're experiencing the world is through technology as opposed to through interactions with others directly with the rise of computer games and that sort of thing. Now, I don't want to overblow that whole situation because the bottom line is there's still, you know, there's still school, there's still sports teams, there's still all of that. But the bottom line is that when technology was not a part of the equation, when I was young and I'm a I'm the last year of the boomers we didn't have that option if we were going to socialize it was face to face it was person to person now we have the opportunity and I think it's beautiful to socialize with people we will never meet right I have some of the best friends that I have right now I've never met in person and to me that's just amazing and they're all over the world and that would have never happened 30 years ago without it. So the, it, the situation is different. What I think the key is to make sure that all of the generations in the workforce are contributing is for all of us to stop judging. We all have experiences. We all have things that we know, things that we don't things that we're interested in, things that we're not, things that are necessary to do the work that we need to do, things that aren't necessary. Where we get balled up, I think, and where we make the biggest mistakes in dealing with each other as people is when we judge. It's when we think that our way is the only way. Well, this could take us into a fascinating <laughs> developmental inquiry because judgment is, I understand the way you use the word judgment. Judgment is a necessary cognitive function. But mm -hmm. what you are describing, you're making a distinction between discernment and value judgment. Value judgment Correct. when I project my set of values in another person and make, therefore, determination about what it is, what is the case about that person rather than actually being prepared to appreciate that they are operating out of a different set of values, therefore they have a different operating system and truly walk a mile in their shoes as the guidance for empathy. So empathetic leadership, leadership with empathy is central in this multi-generational, rapidly shape-shifting, partly remote, partly on-site hybrid environment that's globally shape-shifting. What would you say, based on your observation and, and work, are the, the most um, central skills that leaders need to attend to cultivate, to develop? I don't know if you would call curiosity a skill, but it definitely, curiosity is the number one in my mind. To remain curious, I think as soon as you... As soon as you shut your brain down 
and think you've got it all figured out, that's when you begin to die. So curiosity is number one. It allows you to remain open to other people's values and other ideas. Number two is compassion and empathy. That's tremendous in this day and age. I think tact and diplomacy continues to be high on my personal list. That doesn't mean toxic positivity, which I absolutely love that term because I have personally suffered from a toxic positivity environment in several of the organizations for which I've worked because I have been the devil's advocate. I'm the one that you know, will be the the squeaky wheel and question things because I am curious. I want to know. And so I think being diplomatic and tactful can allow good, good conflictual dialogue without the harmful piece of that. Yes. Well, it's beautiful and uh, and curious because I asked you about the top skills and you offered three areas, three skills, three domains of skills that are in the relational, you in the, in the environment, you in the relationship. You spoke about curiosity, you spoke about empathy, and you spoke about diplomacy, and mm-hmm. which are indeed three very important domains of competencies and skills. I will simply couple them with some of the self-leadership skills and capacities, your own personal resilience, the multi-dimensions of resilience, uh, physical, emotional, social, spiritual resilience, those other dimensions, the know thyself strength and vulnerabilities. And also within that, the I find that many people are suffering now some kind of a cognitive depletion, cognitive, the cognitive capacity is degraded by the velocity of technology. So the capacity to resist that, and what I would add to the uh, relational skills and leadership skills you offered was indeed what you touched earlier, truly cultivating trust-based environment. How do we do this? How do we create environments that people feel nourished by and supported by. Anything else in terms of key insights from your work that you want to share before I proceed to my three closing questions? Oh, just one final one is, and I've run across this and I can't remember where I saw it first, but we often worry about not having enough time and really these days, it's not so much the time that we should be worried about. It's really worrying about where we're going to spend our attention. Where are we going to put our attention? And I think that kind of piggybacks on on what you were saying as far as being discriminating or being discriminatory about what you're paying attention to as a leader. It's so easy to get overwhelmed. And I'm finding that working with some of my executive coaching clients, they are so overwhelmed. And I spend a good many sessions sometimes helping them determine where they should spend their attention 
because there's just so much coming at them all the time. I typically end the, whether it's a three or four day strategic uh, offsite or retreat, I typically begin the last morning with a riddle, which is that I ask people, what, what are the most precious assets? And they usually talk about people and so on. I say, no, no, your, your own personal precious assets. And then I name the, the precious assets, which we already addressed. It's your energy, your time, and your focus. So your attentional, these are your th- the three currencies by which you run and how you manage those determine whether you are highly impactful in your work or whether you are less than the best leader you can be. Right. My three closing questions. With all that you know today, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? (laughs) Chill out. Ah, Okay, nice. (laughs) Trust life? Just chill out. Things will work out. Not everything is drama. Don't sweat the small stuff. I was very intense. (laughs) Okay, nice. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? From a business perspective, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. My capacity to love in my imagination. That's beautiful. The capacity to love and imagination. Julie, this uh, has been... uh, a joyous exploration into this moment in time in the leadership space as we bring this uh, to lending. What wisdom do you wish to offer to people listening to create new futures? Trust yourself. Be kind to yourself and to others. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.